If you have a Bible, uh, Mark chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people because of all that was going on at, the, at, um, at Passover. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at a table and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some, uh, some who said to themselves indignantly, uh, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot who was one of the twelve, who was in Jesus' close band of insiders, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, they were joyful, and they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us to go to prepare for you to eat this Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. It sounds like a spy movie. It's really cool. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out, went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you around this table, one of you who's eating with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is, the one, of the tw- is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes... As it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And it would have been better. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they all sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even if they all fall away, I will not fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all agreed and said the same. That's our text this morning. Let's pray and, um, and ask God for help. Lord, we, uh, we thank you. We turn to, your, to the Bible, your word now, and um, we, we ask that you would give us insight into it. 
that I pray that, um, I pray, God, that you would minister to our hearts, that you would uh, appropriate your, your word in such a way where it, it, it both ministers to those places only you know about. You would move on our hearts in ways that only you, that, like the, even the deepest, darkest places of our heart that no one else knows about, the doubts that we have or the fears that we have, that you would minister to those places. And I pray, God, that you would give us hearts like this woman who poured out that very expensive bottle of perfume on your head and thought that you were worth that much, that you would show us your worth today. I ask for your help, God, anointing. Please anoint me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, we've been in the book now for some time. And what we've been saying every single week is that the, the book of Mark is a story of, uh, the authentic story of Jesus, the real Jesus, the, the true Jesus, the, his character and his mission and his work. And in it we see that the raw and unadulterated, unmessed with Jesus. So if you just want like pure Jesus, I, I recommend that you read the book of Mark. Very fast paced, like picks up really fast and it moves along at fast pace just showing Jesus's, his mission and what he's, he's come to do. And that's what it focuses in on. What we don't see in the book of Mark is a Mark that you can just simply get, uh, a Jesus that you can simply get comfortable with. I think sometimes we do that. We go to Jesus and we kind of go, well, you, I can accept Jesus if he fits into my life this way. If I don't have to change what I believe or who I am, if just Jesus doesn't challenge me, I can accept that. But you won't find a Jesus like that in the book of Mark. This Jesus confronts us. He confronts our tendencies. He confronts our identities. He confronts what we hope in. He confronts what we fear. He confronts all of it. Wherever you're at, when you're reading the book of Mark, Jesus confronts all of that. So much so that there are a group of people right now in this narrative that want to kill him. They've gone up to Jesus. They've said this and that to him. He's exposed their religiosity. He's exposed how how, how they've built these beautiful, extravagant temples, and they've robbed widows, and they've done all these horrible things in the name of religion, and he's exposed all of them. And because of that, they want to get rid of him. In the book of Mark, we get the real Jesus, not detached from the story world of the Bible, and not detached from the context of the unfolding story of the Bible. And Mark was actually the first to scribe, to write down who Jesus really was. And we've been talking about Jesus for a, a little over a year now, and we've been moving towards the climax of the story, its ending, the culmination of the book of Mark, and it's going to happen in the next couple of weeks as we get into this. And it culminates at the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus. Two events that just happened, that we just read, happened in the last days of Jesus' life. Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he knows, I'm going to die there. He knows he will die. He knows he will be betrayed. He knows that his followers will, will scatter, all of them. But what's amazing is the poise of Jesus. Jesus, you don't see him rustling around, running around, trying to scrap up a little band of rebel, rebels to fight with him. You don't see him hiding. You don't see him anxious or worried. You know what you see him doing? You see him eating. You see him reclining with friends, eating. You're like, wait, this does not look like a guy who's about to die. And he knows he's about to die. He knows that the people that he's eating with, one of them is going to betray him. 
Who is this that's just reclining and eating at a leper's house and then he's having this Passover meal and he's talking about bread and wine and what, what, he's going to die. How does he, how can he compose himself like this? And what you see, the undercurrent of this whole passage is that Jesus is in complete control. You see that when, how should we prepare your, your, the Passover? Jesus is like, okay, go into the city. You see a man with the bucket. Go to the man with the bucket. I mean, it's like a spy movie. And then he goes up to the man with the bucket. Teacher said, you know, it's like Star Wars. Teacher said that you have a house. She's like, oh, yes, I do have a house. Follow me. And it's just exactly the way Jesus said it would be. All the while showing, okay, Jesus might be betrayed. Jesus might be killed, but he's in total control while it's happening. It's the will of God. Now, why is it the will of God? Why is this happening? What's going on here? Well, in these last two episodes, these two um, sections that we just read, they have a lot in common with Jesus eating with a leper, and the woman comes in and breaks oil over his head, and then the the quote-unquote last supper, when he's sitting around with his disciples for the last time, eating a meal with them, those two events have a lot in common. Um, they're both framed around meals. Passover was, meal was the most important of, of on, meal on the Jewish calendar. And then you have this outsider's meal with outside of Jerusalem and home of Simon uh, the leper, who lepers were outsiders then. And a woman walks in and barges in on these men having a meal together. It, it was just this whole outsider story. Both of these episodes prepare for Jesus' death. One meal, he breaks Uh, This woman breaks in and anoints his head, and Jesus says, she's preparing me for my death. And the next meal, Jesus takes bread and wine, and he kind of reinterprets the Passover meal, meaning this is my body, this is my death, and this is what it accomplishes. Another thing that we learn from both of these events is what they teach us about Jesus' death. Why did Jesus have to die, or why did Jesus die? Maybe that's a question that you've been wrestling with. Why does the Son of God die? Why doesn't he do something? Why, why is it death that accomplishes what he wants to accomplish? What is it about him dying? And this is what I want to spend our time with this morning, considering what these meals teach us about Jesus' death and what they mean. First, his worth for worshipers, this is kind of how we'll frame this morning. His worth for worshipers, that's how we'll look at the first section. And the second section will be his sacrifice for sinners. We're going to see his worth for worshipers. How is Jesus worth what this woman poured out on him? And then we'll see his sacrifice for sinners. How the sacrifice of Jesus points forward to this, this meal points forward to the cross and the sacrifice he makes on our behalf and what that really means. So first, the worth of, uh, for worshipers. In, in, in this chapter, in chapter 14, it opens by saying that what's happening is happening two days before Passover. Now, it's very important that you get Passover. Mark just kind of like glazes over Passover. He assumes that you know what Passover is, what the Passover meal was. He doesn't explain it. He assumes that you know what it is. But because we're kind of removed from the story world of the Bible, it might be helpful for a little refresher course. What is Passover? It, actually, the season's going on right now. Uh, Passover's coming up very soon, where uh, uh, Jews will have uh, Seder meals, even Messianic Jews will have Seder meals, and, and, and they'll remember what God did in the Exodus. Why do they do this year after year after year? The Passover was a season that was the holiest festival in the Jewish year. 
You were not allowed to celebrate Passover outside of Jerusalem. You had to literally go into Jerusalem. So the city would swell to between 85 and 300,000 people. And the whole context of Passover was deliverance. It celebrated and remembered the time more than a millennium before the time of Jesus when the Israelites had been enslaved to Egypt's Pharaoh, trapped in miserable bondage, slaves where they had once been free in Egypt. And they cried out to God for a deliverer. God, save us. And God sent them Moses. And through Moses, God would deliver Egypt, but he delivered Egypt, uh, delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he would do that through plagues. These are probably familiar to most of you. And he brought plagues upon Egypt to loosen the Pharaoh's oppressive grip. But then one night, God sent a final plague. This is his final plague. And his divine justice would fall, and get this, this is the craziest part of the story. His divine justice would fall on everyone. Didn't matter if you're a Jew, didn't matter if you're an Egyptian. Egyptians and Jews alike, every single home, someone would die under the wrath of God's justice. The only way that your family could escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. The only way that you can escape what was called the plague of death was that if you put your faith in God's sacrificial position, uh, uh, his, his provision. So you had to do this. You had to slay a lamb, take the blood of the lamb, and put it on the doors of your house as a sign of your faith in God. And so every home that night, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. And when God brought his divine justice for the injustice that has been caused God setting the wrongs right here. It either fell on your family or you took shelter under the substitute, under the blood of the lamb. And so this plague of death came in. And if the plague of death saw, the angel of death saw this blood over the doorpost, it would pass over your house and pass over your house and pass over until it didn't see the blood. Then it would take the firstborn. And so the Jews called this time the Passover, obviously, for obvious reasons. And every year they would celebrate the Passover feast, the Passover festival, where God delivered them. But also, every year that they celebrated it, especially this year, as the city of Jerusalem began to swell with people, it also swelled with hope for another liberation. They wanted this to happen again because at this time, Israel was under the oppressive rule of Rome, and they wanted another deliverer, someone to liberate us. We feel like we're in bondage again. We need God to liberate us, and so they would wait for this final liberation from everyone who had ever possessed them. Israel wanted to be free, so people came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They would also come with hopes and expectations for this Messiah, and eventually they would they would hope that this Messiah would come and deliver Israel from foreign oppression, economic misery, and he would do this during the Passover. So the atmosphere in Jerusalem at this time was filled with expectation and nervousness and hope and fears. Jerusalem at this time was so crazy that all the police were out. The Roman governor moved his headquarters to Jerusalem from Caesarea because it, at any moment, the volatile mob could flip and people would raise up some man to be their Messiah. Now, if ESPN was covering the Passover feast, 
like they cover like the Final Four or something or, or March Madness. As Jesus was coming in, this is what would happen if you're watching ESPN. I don't know if you guys watch or, or the news or something. They would go, okay, everyone, the guy to watch this year for Passover is Jesus. He can be the one. He could be the one to take the whole Messiah crown. He could be the one to take it all. Look how he came in, riding on a donkey. Yeah, it's a bit strange, but everyone's worshiping him. Everyone's bowing down. Look what he does. He comes in, it's like shows clips, and everyone, he comes in, and he starts throwing tables over. So it's like slow motion, Jesus like throwing tables over and doing these things like, look what he did in the temple. And then he's arguing with the religious leaders and look at him arguing, look what he says. He's fighting and he's winning, fighting, winning. This could be our guy. This could be our Messiah. And everybody thought that. Everybody that was around you was like, this guy, he's our hope. He can come and he can drive back Rome. He could destroy our, the oppressive grip upon Israel, and he can be our deliverer. And so everyone thought that Jesus was the guy. Everyone had their eyes on this particular Passover. That's why it says the chief priests and the scribes who thought Jesus was a threat to them were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So they wait for him. They wait like snakes in the grass for their opportune time to pounce and destroy Jesus. Now right before the Passover feast happened, Jesus leaves Jerusalem to eat a meal at one of his friend's house. His name is Simon the leper. Now, we don't know much about Simon. He's probably a man who had leprosy that Jesus healed in his ministry. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, a group of, his group of friends, a woman barges in and stands right above Jesus, and in her hand is gripped this very, very, very expensive bottle of perfume. So she barges in and stands over Jesus with this expensive bottle of perfume. And as a rule, don't hold this against me, this was just the time then, as a rule, it was a huge breach of etiquette for a Jewish male fellowship to be interrupted by a woman unless they were serving food, okay? So don't, don't get all mad yet, just a second. And so when this woman broke in to their feast, all the men around this, this place looked at, looked at um, this girl and was like, what do you want? What are you doing here? And she's holding in her hand this very, and everybody knows, like, ooh, that's an expensive bottle of perfume. Everybody knows. Someone actually says it's worth over, oh, uh, worth 300 denarii, which is a lot of money. And she's holding and gripping this bottle of nice, swanky, beautiful-smelling perfume. And she comes in, and everyone in the room is looking at her. She stood there with this bottle of perfume worth over 300 denarii, which was about the the equivalent of what a male was made in a year. So it was something like maybe, let's say, fifty to $75,000 of perfume in her hand. Now, women didn't necessarily make that much money back then, so this bottle of perfume was probably a family heirloom passed down to her by her grandmother and her grandmother before her and so on and so forth. So check this out. Expensive bottle of perfume was not only monetarily valuable, but it had sentimental value as well. My grandma gave me this, and it's been in our family for five generations. This bottle not only is my security, because at any time I could sell it and, and have enough to live off for over a year, but my grandma gave me this. So she's holding this bottle of perfume over Jesus' head, and what is she doing? Everybody's looking, what is she going to do next? And she breaks it. She breaks this vial, this flask. She breaks it over Jesus' head and pours the whole thing on Jesus' head. 
See, an act of love like this, worship like this, generosity like this has not been seen even inside Jesus' inner circle. An act of love has not been seen like this. They were all flipping out. They're like, wait, this is insane. What are you doing with that? Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's harder for guys to show their love. Maybe. Might be an overgeneralization, but let's, I would say, after studying the book of Mark, the women that express their love to Jesus is absolutely amazing. Guys are boneheads. And I would say the same sort of transfers over into the church. In the church, there's something that women get about loving and responding to the love of God. And there's something that men just don't get. And again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but that's, there's something about like men going, okay, I understand you will never catch me, some guys say this, on the carpets, crying to God. That's just really, that's a little bit emo. I'm not, I'm not like that. I don't. I worship God in my own way, and it's normally like this. <laughs> like, I have my own thing, and you do your thing. I might come up for communion. I'll just walk up and just do my thing, and, and I'm out. I'm not going to come down here. I'm not going to go for the prayer. I'm not going to do that, that, that silly stuff. Serving, all that. That's, okay, let the, I, I'll, I'll go and do my, I'll do my thing. And this, this happens all the time. And I understand, I get, I get it, okay? I know that certain people express their love to God in different ways. I get that. But that, what happens, though, in our hearts when we do this is when we see someone loving God extravagantly, we tend to get a little mad. We tend to get a little snobby. We tend to get, like, judgmental, like, who are you to love God that much? You look silly. That's exactly what every single guy around the circle thought some of them, Jesus says, were mad at her, became indignant. They were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted? Look what it says. Why was it wasted like that? What a waste of money. What a waste of perfume. What a waste of a life. What a waste of your time. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. They were saying to this woman, how dare you love Jesus that much? What a waste. You could have written him a note, maybe. That would have been nice. Sent him some flowers. Or, okay, this might be crazy, sell the bottle of perfume, give Jesus 10%, and then with the rest, invest it, make your money work for you, that sort of thing. That's logical. What you've done, woman, is illogical, crazy, emotional, I don't believe you. And some of them were mad. We're like, oh. You know who was especially mad was, um, implied in the text was Judas. He was really mad. To where this was the point where he snapped and was like, I'm going to turn him in. I've had enough of Jesus. I'm going to betray him. So this begs the question, how much is too much devotion to Christ? Maybe you've wrestled with that. Like, how much is too much devotion? Notice that she gave everything. Notice that she broke the bottle. She didn't, pour, she didn't un, un, unscrew the top and, like, dip her finger in and, like, pet his head. There you go, Jesus. You know, that was good. I gave you some of my, my family. She broke it, meaning you couldn't put the oil back into it. 
She broke the flask. It was over. All of it was spilt out. It was all gone. She gave everything. Like the woman before who gave, a widow who gave two mites. It says that she gave everything her whole life. I mean, really, how much is too much devotion to Christ? Most people never have a problem with too much wealth or too much power or too much work or too much sex or too much influence. We don't have a problem with that. What we have a problem with is too much religion or too much devotion to God. This is something that I wrestled with when I first began to follow Jesus. Where I had family and friends like, hey, don't get too crazy. Moderation in all things. And there was something that like, I, I love, I, I just, I, I love God so much. I just, he's saved me and delivered me. He gets all of me. Just wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do. And this is something that this woman got. This woman understood something that no one else in the room understood. And this is what causes us to worship like this. It's what, it was understanding the worth of Jesus. Notice what they said. What a waste of money. That's a waste. That was six, $60,000. You just gave it all to God? What a waste. And she's like, he's worth way more. I would gladly give this and weigh a, a lot more. See, certain people in that room just looked at her and said, this is a waste. You can't, to show love like this to Jesus, this is just too much. You could have done so much good with that perfume. You could have actually sold it and given to the poor. You could have done some real good. But the extravagance of this woman shows that she alone understands the incomparable worth of Christ. He's worth it all. He's worth it. So she pours out everything, everything she has on Jesus. But you might be asking the question, why is he worthy? What did he do to receive such worth? What did this woman see that no one else saw in that room? Now, the only way to understand what this woman's act of pouring out precious perfume on Jesus' head, the worth of that action, the only way to understand that is to recognize how Jesus poured out his blood for you. And that's the second point, his sacrifice for sinners. The next meal that happens is actually Jesus' last meal. The last meal that he'll ever eat, the last meal he'll ever eat with his best friends, best friends that he's lived with for three years, one of them he knows is going to outright betray him, backstab him, lie to him, and betray him with a kiss. You know, during Jesus' passion scene, the only two people that show Jesus affection are this woman who pour out perfume and Judas who betrays him with a kiss. During Jesus' passion, him going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. The next meal that he eats is the Last Supper. You guys are familiar with that. It's also the first communion, first time that communion has ever been served. And it's also the, was the Passover meal. So what does all this, all this mean? When they sit down for, for Passover, the final meal with Jesus, he starts by saying, one of you around this table, one of you around this circle is going to betray me. One of you is going to lie and betray me. In my inner circle, the, my closest friends, one of my followers, one of the 12, will betray me. This causes the whole room to ask, who is going to betray you? 
Who's going to do that to you, Jesus? Everyone's examining themselves. Everyone starts to be filled with sorrow. All of Jesus' talks about him dying might actually come true. Who's going to do this? Of course, it was Judas. Judas would betray Jesus. An agreement that he made with the chief priests to betray him and have him handed over to, to be killed for some cash. But the irony is, and this is part of our history as a church, that the first communion, the purest and the holiest moment of the church's life, began with the announcement of treachery. One of you is going to betray me. But there, have been, there may have been only one traitor here. Judas was the only traitor in a formal sense, but check this out. Everyone around this table, and this is what I, I kind of want you to get as we, we kind of wrap this up. Everyone around this table would betray Jesus. Judas might have betrayed him in the formal sense in that it was premeditated. And he's like, I'm getting cash for this deal. But everyone around that circle would betray Jesus. Everyone would flee. And so they ask, Jesus, who will it be? And you know what Jesus says? One of the 12 that's eating with me. And they're like, uh, we're all eating with you. Okay, one of you that dips his hand in my, in my dish, you're like, uh, we're, it's a communal meal. We're all dipping our hand in your dish. And here's the deal. All of them would betray him. The fact is, Judas premeditated a plan of betrayal, but everyone would betray him out of fear. So he's surrounded by a table of betraying sinners who are called his friends. And one of these sinners, Judas, will betray Jesus and kill himself, and the others will betray Jesus and hide themselves. So what does Jesus do at this meal, knowing that they, everyone will be scattered and one of them will betray? He breaks bread. He takes the bread and he breaks it. Now this is important to understand the context of what Jesus is doing. They were celebrating the Passover meal, and the Passover meal would start with this blessing that was pronounced by the head of the family. It's great. If you've never been a part of Seder, I highly recommend it. A blessing, and then the youngest child, the cutest part of Seder, the cutest part of the Passover meal is this cute little kid. Normally, a cute little Jewish, Jewish kid will go, Dad or, 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 you know, or Mom, why is, the night, why is this night different from all the other nights? In the cutest little voice. Just melt your heart. And then what Dad does is like, good question. And then he goes and he explains and he teaches how the various, the things that he recounts, the deliverance that God has brought to the, to the, to the Jewish people from Egypt. Then the father of the house teaches how the various foods symbolize the bitter captivity in Egypt and, and both the hardships and the blessings of the Exodus, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, greens, roasted lamb, and what they all mean. And then lastly, the family and the guests are invited to partake of the meal. And during this meal, Jesus, this meal of deliverance from bondage and, and the passing over of God's judgment by substitutionary blood of the lamb, during the context of this meal, Jesus grabs the bread. Now, notice it, there's no lamb mentioned that they ate because Jesus is the lamb. And he grabs the bread and he breaks the bread. And he says, take, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, do you see what's happening? First of all, Jesus is redefining the Passover meal. He is saying that the Passover meal points to me. 
The first Passover was really about this Passover. The lamb pointed forward to this lamb that would be slain on our behalf, his body broken, his blood poured out. Now, you guys might have known that. But check this out. Look at who's around this table. Mentally go around this table of his closest friends. And they're sinners, betrayers, cowards. Peter even says, even though all will fall away, this is what, this is what Peter meant. Even though all will fall away, uh, Jesus, I know these guys, they're probably going to fall away. But not me. I got a sword. I'm strong. I'm Peter, the rock. Remember you call me the rock? I got your back. And Jesus goes, mm, actually, three times you'll deny me. They all deny me once. You're going to royally screw up. Three times, Peter. The bigger question, as you read the two sections together, the bigger question than why waste $60,000 on perfume for Jesus' head? Like, what a waste. $60,000 to anoint his head, and his head would eventually in two days be smashed in and not smell of nard anymore, but blood and sweat? Why would you waste $60,000? The bigger question is why waste Jesus on the cross? Why take a man with all of his authority, all of his charisma, all of his love and compassion, his willingness and ability to politically solve all of Israel's problems, to heal people of demonic oppression, to make the blind see? Why take someone like that and waste his death on a group of people who will soon betray him? Three years, and this is what he has to show for it, a band of insiders who all of them are going to fall away. Why would you waste Jesus like that? That's the bigger question that the text, I think, is asking. And the answer is found, I think, around this table. I think the answer is found, actually, in this circle of people at church this morning. The answer is found in our city, and the answer is found in our world. With the disciples about to betray him, the religious leaders about to uh, uh, arrest him and, and have him uh, uh, scourged, and the Romans who are about to crucify him, Jesus in the center, Jesus knows, the reason why I need to die is because the world needs saving. My disciples need to be saved. Those people that are about to brutally murder me, as he will say on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The world needs saving. You need saving. I need saving. Just as that pure spikenard poured out for Jesus was not a waste, Jesus' blood poured out for many is not a waste. The two things that connect here is this woman pours out all of her precious perfume and Jesus will pour out all of his precious blood for us. And this verse comes alive in the context of Mark 14. Romans 5, 8 says this, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died. You might, you might have thought the question, how do I know that God loves me? How does God show me his love? Here's how he shows you his love. 
while Jesus was surrounded by a band of guys that would betray him, while Jesus was surrounded by a nation that would yell crucify, when Jesus was surrounded by a world that would reject him, he still went to the cross. He went to the cross for me when before I was saved and I would curse God and live the way I wanted to live. And I've actually, I actually told God before that I hate him, I want nothing to do with him. In that place, he died for me still. The people I see rejecting God year after year after year, while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Knowing that people would reject him, he did. And if you look at the context of the Last Supper, the First Communion, it proves that salvation and redemption isn't based on you. If you thought that, okay, so you're saying that for me to be saved and for me to have God pass over my sins, I have to do good things. No, you, you can't. The disciples proved that. Around that circle, there was nothing of merit. It was all about Jesus and what he had, had done, what he does on our behalf. So you see, communion, the, the, the table of communion is not a table of merit. It's a table of grace. The table that, that, that surrounded Jesus in the Last Supper was not a table of merit. It wasn't like these men deserved to be there. Like, you deserve to be here because you're strong. You deserve to be here because you're smart. You deserve to be here because you're obedient. Every single one of them would fall away. Every single one of them was a sinner. So that was a table of grace. And so when you come forward in a second to receive communion, know that this communion table is a table of grace. You can never deserve it. You can never be worthy of the sacrifice that God has done. It's all grace. All of it. So the only prerequisite to come to the table of communion is need. Is you coming forward going, I need Jesus. See, Jesus said that this blood, when he held up the cup at the end, he grabbed the cup and he held up the cup. He goes, this cup, he says, is a new covenant. See, this is what happened in the old covenant. The old covenant, when, when they made the old covenant, the law, you're like, will you all obey this law? And they go, yes. And then Moses sprinkled the blood over everybody. But this covenant you take in. It's not sprinkled on you. You bring it in. There is this personal connection that you get to have, a relationship that you get to have with the living God because of what Jesus has done. And so going to the table of communion is this, his body broken for me, his blood poured out for me, not of merit, it's of grace, grace, grace. And understanding that is the only way that we can pour out our lives to God. If I tell you, hey, men, start worshiping, that's not going to do anything. You'll do it one week, and that's it. Maybe you'll, you'll this week decide, okay, I'm going to come forward. I've never come before. I'm gonna... It won't last unless you understand what God has done for you. And then your life is poured out as a response to God. So it's us coming to realize and understand. As Jesus goes, and we're going to see next week, as he goes to the place that almost kills him before he gets to the cross, the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes through this for you. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that we did not deserve nor earn that you are our substitute, just like that lamb that was slaughtered in the Exodus and blood was poured over the doorposts. It was 
It was the substitutionary sacrifice. And I don't think there's a, a one of us in this room. We could have grown up in the church and not said a single bad thing about someone and prayed three times a day. And we still wouldn't deserve. We still wouldn't merit. I guess we can all confess that we all even break our own standards. How in the world can we live up to yours? But we thank you that you came and you died. We thank you that you poured out your blood that we can live. I pray, God, that you would um, ignite faith in the hearts of people that need faith this morning or this afternoon that you would give us strength, and as we come to the table of communion today, we'd come and walk forward in repentance and leave rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen.